This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for only $10. That's 67% off. An exclusive subscription offer for our listeners, forward.com slash 2NJB, and get six months for 10 bucks. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. Israel recently went through a traumatic year of election cycles, in which it seemed like there were no winners, only losers. But eventually, amidst all the political gunfire and smoke, a government was formed. One of the figures that emerged from that year is Michal Kotler Wunsch. Michal is the daughter of a former Canadian justice minister and the former parliamentary secretary of Begin's Gachal and Likud parties. So it's no surprise that she's risen to such prominence. Michal joined the Knesset as a member of Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party after the March elections. She recently rose to national and international headlines after leading a string of hearings of the largest social media companies, including Facebook, Twitter, and Google, questioning them on their censorship policies last month. We are very excited and very honored to be joined today by Michal Kotler-Wunsch to talk about censorship on social media, about the protests going on in Israel, and about much, much more. Thank you Hello. so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So uh, tell us what that, I mean, about that hearing. You, you were uh, leading the action, you were leading the hearings, right? Yeah, so first of all, the reason that I asked to have the hearing, um, yeah. and we had it at the Immigration and uh, Integration Committee, Ironically, uh, we had it after a series of discussions about anti-Semitism off digital platforms. So rising mm -hmm. anti-Semitism as the you know coronavirus challenges, COVID-19 challenges around the world, we see a rise, dramatic rise in anti-Semitism. Um, and this specific request that I made to the committee chair to begin with actually one hearing, it was initially just one hearing, was to have Twitter, as you mentioned, Facebook and others, um, basically testify before the committee with regard to, I'm not sure if you were familiar with the No Safe Space for Jew Hate initiative on Twitter. So resulting from Wiley tweets, I don't know if you know who Wiley is. I certainly didn't in... in Wiley? Yeah, he's no. a very prominent public figure okay. in Great Britain. And uh, many politicians and actually just all kinds of public figures joined this 48-hour blackout on Twitter that was initiated because Twitter didn't respond to very anti-Semitic tweets that he posted or tweeted rather and that went viral and remained actually for a very very long time I mean 36 hours in you know digital platform time is forever mm -hmm. um, and Twitter didn't bother removing them so after the no safe space for Jew hate which I joined it was a 48 hour blackout and I'll say as a free speech expert as a human rights activist I don't believe in boycotts. It's not something that I signed up for. And in this case, it actually wasn't a boycott at all. It was a 48-hour blackout, as far as I was concerned, was actually just to raise awareness uh, to what I think we all have to become aware of, and that is the responsibility that social media platforms 
have to take alongside the tremendous power that they hold. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, Twitter did appear at the hearing. Uh, I'll say that the Twitter representative is in charge of the Nordics and Israel, uh, challenging in and of That's itself. That's a weird mix. The Nordics and Israel. That is it. You... <laughs> Why? Why did they choose to group us together? And I am not sure, but I'd say they're all beautiful. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good. That's a good. That's so positive. That is such a good explanation for they something. They probably just listen to this podcast and don't watch the video. So. <laughs> right. So the Twitter representative showed up at the hearing, and actually, um, I recommend watching it because it's very telling. There's a moment in the hearing where. Uh, there were several advocates, um, free speech advocates around the room, and also, um, I'd say, uh, active participants in flagging online hate, mm -hmm. specifically anti-Semitism, were around the table and on Zoom. That's how we have many of our hearings these days. And one of them uh, asked the Twitter representative a very specific question, comparing the calls for genocide by Iran's Khamenei and Trump tweets that were recently flagged or whatever mm -hmm. it is that they technologically do on Twitter. And the Twitter representative actually went ahead and explained what the Twitter policy is that enabled precisely that, precisely that. Um, the calls for genocide are considered saber rattle mm -hmm. on Twitter, and I quote, um, whereas a politician's statements, whatever they may be, regarding political situation or otherwise, according to Twitter's policy, current policy is that the politician should be held to account by their constituencies, um, and the public should be made aware that this doesn't um, comply with Twitter regulations. And that is indeed what the Twitter representative um, explained. It was a moment in the hearing that was actually very dramatic. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what kind of hit the headlines. It did. It did. It made it to the White House. It yeah. made it to Fox News. And there to Ben Shapiro's podcast, which did. is the most important outlet here in this room. Because <laughs> yeah. right. Aitan's a fan. So. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. So, so th look, there were nearly a million views. I think that there is a lot that can be that can be attributed to those million views. Um, mm -hmm. The first thing is it coincided with the hearing, completely coincidentally, of course, with the hearing that took place that day in the States with the digital platforms. Um, and really, when I think about it again, you know, when I think of the, the, the setup that this took, it was about the power that these companies hold, hold and the, the corporate responsibility that mm -hmm. we should or shouldn't hold them to account to. I'm not sure how you feel about that, but that we should or should and shouldn't hold them to account to. And who's we? Is it, do we expect, do we expect, we the users, do the countries expect the mm -hmm. digital platforms to have um, the regulation of speech? And I'll say again, you know, as a, as a, as a researcher of free speech, as, as, as somebody who understands very deeply what happens when we attempt to regulate speech, uh, my my own research focuses on university campuses, except it's just another ecosystem. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the effects are the same effects. And I'll say that what was very interesting was the recommendation that we made um, to the digital platforms generally uh, and the assumption that we made that you can't fight a problem until you define it. Mm -hmm. And so if there is indeed a problem of anti-Semitism online, the first thing that needs to happen is there has to be a definition for what anti-Semitism is. And luckily, there is an IRA working definition, which over 30 states have adopted for anti-Semitism. So the IHRA working definition for anti-Semitism, and I recommend that we all get to know it um, because the majority of our countries have adopted it. In fact, it doesn't have, it's not a legally binding definition. In that sense, it's a recommendation, um, but it exists. So if we can define a problem and address it, 
then we can create transparent policy and then we can implement that policy and so on. That was the recommendation, is that the companies, and they're familiar with the IRA working definition, um, and the IRA working definition, I should mention, adds a very important component, uh, which I think the hearing raised the imperative for, and that is what we call the three Ds, the delegitimization, the demonization, and the double standard towards the state of Israel. And double standard is what we actually saw right along that hearing and actually the follow-up hearing that we had um, in which Facebook was uh, took a more prominent role um, than in the first hearing. That was, that was... But isn't it a very slippery slope to expect social media companies to censor themselves? I mean, who says what's the red line there? And can they even do that? So first of all, that's an excellent question. And in fact... Uh, the recommendation of the committee was not that they censor at all, meaning whatever is illegal offline. So, and in each country that looks a little bit differently, right? Clear and present danger, the limitation to free speech in the United States looks very different than in Canada, incitement, fighting words. It's somewhere else on the spectrum of where we censor speech, so to speak, where, um, where we um, perceive the speech to have, a, as in the American model, clear and present danger. But That actually wasn't the focus of the hearing. The focus on the, of the hearing was about the responsibility or the corporate responsibility they hold to educate, not necessarily to censor at all. And why did they have... They educate? Who wants them to educate anybody? So that, that, is, exactly the, that is exactly the question that, that I think that we need to be having. So do they have any responsibility at all? And if they have a responsibility, is it to censor speech? Do we want them censoring speech? So what do you think? Do we want an algorithm censoring speech? I certainly don't. Um, uh, think that an algorithm should be neither the vehicle we use, but in terms of education, and that's where I think that we should be po putting the focus, when there is the technological possibility to click through, as the Twitter representative taught me, the Trump uh, statements, whatever they might be, or any politician statements, or for that matter, any human being statements, I don't want the digital platforms educating per se, I don't want them creating the definition, but there is a plethora of information out there, and the question is if they can refer out to, let's say, the definition of anti-Semitism according to IHRA, right? This is flagged as anti-Semitic content. If you'd like to keep re reading, you can click through. If you'd like to know what anti-Semitism actually means, then here we can refer you out to an internationally recognized definition for anti-Semitism. But, but you can Google it. anything that you want to know. You can Google and go to Wikipedia. You're right. Not if you don't know what it is, right? So I, Who doesn't I, know what Wikipedia is? No, who doesn't know no, what anti-Semitism anti is? is the question, not Wikipedia. So the question is really, and, it, and, it, and it's a serious question, it's not one I take lightly at all. What is the responsibility? And it's not just with regards to anti-Semitism and certainly not just about Jews. This is regarding hate speech, right? We have um, laws that censor speech off digital platforms, on the street, right? I tell my kids, if you're comfortable holding up a street sign for the rest of your life and standing on the corner saying whatever it is that you're about to post, then go ahead. Then, then, then post it. I got to delete like half my posts under that <laughs> definition. Well, or maybe you have, you know, a different But I made them when I was like yes. 15, yes. 16. That's right. So That's why I tell them now. They're, yeah. they're that age. <laughs> I figure I should warn them ahead of time. And they're there forever. Um, but, but, but seriously speaking, when you think of what's happening on university campuses, and, I, and I'll speak to the subject that I know well, okay? So in terms of regulation of speech, you may be familiar with what's happening on university campuses in terms of microaggressions and trigger warnings mm -hmm. and no platforming and speech codes, what's referred to speech codes. We're actually far beyond speech codes now. We're actually at speech commands, not only what you can or cannot say, but what silence means. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with this whole new understanding, you know, of, 
your silence. It's also what you have to say, right. which was kind of came to prominence in Canada with the C-16 bill. A hundred percent. So, 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 so th- this is a huge issue. But the question is, and we have to ask ourselves this question, what happens on digital platforms where there is no regulation, where it's the wild, wild west of speech? Right. And if hate speech and online offline weave into one another, and I can give another example that I'm very, very involved in, and that is terror. Right. So if terrorists are using digital platforms to incite, not only to incite, but to teach how to, let's say, create incendiary balloons, for example, is there a responsibility of digital platforms? Do we want them to have responsibility of digital platforms? Do we want users to have that power and to flag what it is that we think is dangerous content? Is there anybody? Are there it reminds s- me of the old saying, I don't know which Knesset member said it, bring me over the, the, the guy who's responsible over the internet. It's right. A, it's a <laughs> so, classic. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so, and again... I mean, everything exists already on the internet. You're right that everything so exists. So what does it matter if it's on Twitter or not? It's on Google anyway, everything. So, so, so again, I, I mean, I think there's a question to be asked. What is our responsibility, let's say, to the younger generation? So if kids don't know, for example, TikTok, by the way, didn't show. It's mm-hmm. a really good example. TikTok is a no-show, okay? So if millions of kids are, you know... Um, experimenting with Holocaust denial without knowing that they're experimenting with Holocaust denial. They don't know what Holocaust denial is. By the way, they probably don't know what the Holocaust was. But what do you mean by experimenting with Holocaust denial? And then? So this is just a recent TikTok um, uh, cool uh, activity, and that is that you can challenge turn yourself. Challenge is the term. Challenge, is that the term? Yeah. Thank you for educating me. It's a new TikTok challenge. You can, you yourself can appear to be a Holocaust survivor in all kinds of shapes and forms. Um, and and um, the denial part is the issue, right? The denial of history or the, I would say, the normalization of what being a Holocaust survivor actually is. So we're That's all... That's just... Can we wait? Can we stop? Yeah. That's just weird. Yeah. It's not... But there's nothing... I mean... It's like a filter of... Yeah. Everyone... Anyone can become a... Y- yeah, you you ah you sh- you, you make you, you do your you makeup. You paint yourself, and you you, you can use a, an image, you know, the inspiration of an image of a Holocaust survivor, and dress yourself up as. And that. people all around the world are doing. And this. children, I want to, I really want to emphasize the children piece because that's why I go to education, and I go to education as a lawyer. I don't go to the law as a lawyer. Children all around the world are using that. Are um, what did you teach me there? Challenging the challenge, yeah. Yeah, or answering to the challenge. Yeah. So what? how did this even start? I, we got to look this up I mean, up it started in 33, actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah which, no. which, which may be a part of TikTok's responsibility to just say the Holocaust did happen. It started in 33. Um, and, um, and what is That's our crazy. responsibility as a society, right, towards those buildings? But I would, I would, I, instead of pointing a finger at the TikTok, I would point a finger uh, on the parents, at the parents. I mean, what else is there? I don't know. It's, uh, I, I don't see what's the end game here. So uh, I'll say something about that. First of all, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's a very large challenge to generations, and I'm very grateful that I'm not in that generation. I wish you guys luck. My kids are older. Um, I think that pointing a finger to the parents is an important finger to point. I think that we have personal responsibility of tremendous, um, of tremendous magnitude at this time more than any other time. And I think that digital platforms or you know, the use of devices that I didn't have as a young parent and now all of my children have, um, with that 
and we have power in our own hands, with that comes a tremendous amount of personal responsibility. However, I do think that either countries or corporations have some sort of a accountability that they need to be held to. Now, they could be held to account by the public. We can decide not to use TikTok, for example, because we don't think this challenge is an appropriate one for our children to use or f forbid our, parent, our children from using TikTok. In that case, you're right. Uh, but is that sufficient? And it's a question to be asked. I, I, I don't have a... I have a lot more questions than answers. As I said, as a free speech expert, I got as an academic... Usually, usually politicians that we brought had firm answers to everything right Where, more answers than questions yeah more so i i i i guess in that sense maybe i'm unique as a politician i have many more questions and answers and i think that we have a challenge on a new generation and possibly even an indication of where israeli politics has to go and maybe this will enable us to talk a little bit about why um why a new kind of leadership is important for the state of Israel, the miracle that is the state of Israel at 72, mm -hmm. the Jewish and democratic state of Israel um, that was formed based on certain principles. I would say the Declaration of Independence. I would mm -hmm. say those principles um, enabled the founding fathers and mothers of this country um, to create the physical infrastructure. And I think that our generation, my generation certainly, um, and yours as well, Uh, have a responsibility for the next level, the spiritual understanding and the vision that we have and the mission and the values that we either um, uh, want to reform or recommit to um, around those foundational values. May I just, if we, if we focus on that last sentence, the values on which this state, I mean, the values on which this state was uh, founded upon are socialism, first and foremost, but then also this, I don't know, semi-dictatorship that Ben-Gurion held uh, and his firm and, and firm control of and the party and the red, uh, how do you call it, the red booklet mm -hmm. that you had to own if you want to get a job and all the Mizrahi Jews couldn't get a job because they didn't own that red booklet um, and also Etzel members. So those are the foundations of our state so, so are we do we want to go back there i'm not sure i don't think that i would have painted it quite that way and i say it from a place that we know in an e in an era of uh identity politics and cancel culture where and intersectionality where that can lead and i as the granddaughter of an iraqi immigrant who was an etzel member and refused to hold a red card and therefore instead of when he emigrated on his own to the state of israel Um, instead of being a teacher, which was he, he was educated to be, he was uh, a tailor until his dying day. No, so you long for these days? So for those days? I wouldn't have, but I wouldn't have explained those as the foundational values of those country, this country at all. The foundational values of this country, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, are in the Declaration of Independence, right? So much as the American Constitution... Uh, has the ability to change over time, unless we all think, well, John A. McDonald's statue was taken down in Canada yesterday in Montreal, actually. So unless we all think that that's the direction we should go and maybe blow up Mount Rushmore as part of that understanding of, you know, the constitutional understanding or the American, um, you know, founding fathers having held, let's say, slaves in that case, You're attributing not all of what no yeah. I know, but you're attributing Ben Gurion's. Um, you're attributing what they did or how they carried out 
the foundational principles to the foundational principles. The Declaration of Independence, first of all, has the word equality in it about 30 times. Okay. Now, the word equality at the time may have not included men, I don't know, LGBTQ+, it may have not, but it does now. Mm -hmm. And so the ability of these documents to have the flexibility of changing over time, but remain the mission, vision, value statements enable us to either re-accept the covenant. We cannot. We can also decide that we have a new covenant, a new social covenant, and we need to reorganize around it. And I'm not claiming that I, you know, I happen to think that the Declaration of Independence is one that we can all regroup around. That is my conviction. I agree, but you didn't say the, the Declaration of Independence in the first place. You said... No, she mentioned it. No, she I mentioned it. Oh, oh, maybe I missed it. But okay, but the point okay. is there's a difference between... My bad. There's a difference between the Declaration, I feel, and the foundations on which the country... It's not necessarily so if de facto it, the it, same thing. Uh, uh, That's, that was my point. First but of all, I if agree if, with if, you about the declaration. If I wasn't accurate enough, then when I say the foundational principles, and I thought I mentioned as stated in the, in the Declaration of Independence, okay. not necessarily but the, by the people who carried out okay. the foundational yeah. principles, but that's always true anywhere. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I fully understand this, but the Declaration of Independence, as I understand, isn't necessarily a legal document or it's become a legal document, but there's, there's like a difference. For example, in the United States, there's the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So here we only have one and we're kind of trying to make the other one from scratch as we go. So, so and we fail. Yeah, so, isn't so, that a problem? So first of all, so I was a young lawyer at the time of the Constitutional Revolution, as it's known today, mm -hmm. in the dinosaur days in the 1990s. And uh, that Constitutional Revolution, what it was meant to do is actually, you're right, to take or institutionalize or legalize the founding principles through a constitution for the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't succeed fully. What we ended up with is a few basic laws, human dignity, um, employment, a few basic laws that have standing that's higher than regular legislation. Um, and I would argue, and I've actually even already taken a step forward in order to, in, to enact or legislate a basic law declaration of independence, because I think that that has to have, at least as far as I see it, a renewal of the covenant um, that we can all agree around. By the way, Jews and Arabs and religious and secular and Mizrahi and Ashkenazi, those foundational principles. And I think that the state of Israel at 70, and you know, Canada at 70 was where it was and the United States was on the brink of a civil war. The state of Israel is only 70 years old. And I think that we have a tremendous opportunity. And by the way, it's part of the reason that I do think unity government is a good thing and elections are a bad thing. I think that it is imperative that we begin to have these discussions about religion and state, about Jewish and democratic, in the spirit of the Gabizon Meidan, Ruthie Gabizon, who just passed away, the Gabizon Meidan covenant. And it's, it's, it's purposeful that it's a covenant and not a law. Mm -hmm. Right. A covenant is something that has the ability, the malleability to change over time. But they are values that we gather around. It's also not status quo. The law is very firm. The law is something that doesn't have any room for movement. Right. Something like Israel is Jewish and democratic or. But it doesn't say democracy. In the, you're right. Yeah. It doesn't. But it says, as I said, the word shivion, Equal. equality, appears about 30 times in the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence. So equality is really the fundamental, I would say, the fundamental value in democracy or, you know. But isn't, isn't it a problem to have a document that's not so, I mean, what you mentioned, the constitutional revolution that happened in the 90s. Yes. I mean. In the, in the states, the little I know about law, there's uh, there's the uh, 
the uh, textualists, right, who look at the Constitution and say we need to read it by word, and there's people who look at the Constitution and say kind of we can interpret it. And as I understand, in the 90s, there was this movement by uh, Aaron, Barak. Aaron Barak to kind of make things more, as you put them, malleable. But isn't that a problem to it kind of the head sit? of the Supreme Court. Yeah. So he's the former Chief Justice, Aaron Barak, and I actually yeah. had the privilege of clerking for him uh, in my young lawyer days. So, so just to kind of... Um, to focus the question, isn't it a problem legally to, to stand on something that's constantly changing because then you don't have a firm basis? You're 100% right. I think that part of the challenge that we have is that we haven't seen through the process. Right? Part of the reason mm -hmm. that we, um, uh, you mentioned it before, that I think that we didn't see through the process is that the Declaration of Independence never had any legal standing. It was just sort of a declaration right? And the declaratory piece of it left it open-ended. Um, and it also left it up to, um, to, uh, to chance. There was no real binding nature to the, mm -hmm. and there still isn't, to the Declaration of Independence. It's a recommendation. The Constitutional Revolution, and actually, um, and I have gr the greatest respect for former Chief Justice Aaron Barak, the Constitutional Revolution, uh, and I think this in general, uh, revolutions usually lead to counter-revolutions. I think that the issues we're talking about are really more, or maybe I'm more, of an evolutionary gal. I think that what we're talking about is the discourse that the Israeli public has never really had evolutionary-wise. The conversation that I see as the role of government to begin to lead. I see it as when I talk about a reconciliatory process, or even truth and reconciliation that happened in Canada, that happened elsewhere, that enables a lot of the, um, of the pain, actually, of the way that the people interpreted the values, something that you mentioned before about Mizrahi Jews, including my own grandparents, my own grandfather, um, the ability or and, and very difficult stories that, you know, that come up 70 years later of, of um, a personal stories, human stories. I really think that it's imperative for there to be leadership now that has more questions than answers, that is able to lead these conversations forward mm -hmm. and enable the discussions that lead to truth and reconciliation. And I think that elections are very counterproductive to that. I think we saw that in the last year and a half. I think that the divisive nature of where we are as a society, by the way, it intersects with global processes, some of which we mentioned, whether it's identity politics or intersectionality or cancel culture. We don't live in a bubble. We sometimes think we live in a bubble, but we don't. What happens in the state of Israel, including you know the current demonstrations, what we see every day in Israel is actually manifestations very directly connected to global processes. And if I were to have my choice, then we would have a leadership. And by the way, it's why I've chosen to be in blue and white, enter this very complicated government. It's not a simple unity You could government. have went with the PID. So I came with the party called Telim, Nualumit Mamlachtit, with Bogi Alon. That's where I would have went, or in theory. Now I, he's a part of a pizza party. They merged. They merged, indeed. Uh, Yeshati Telim, as far as I'm concerned, left blue and white and not the opposite, meaning when the three parties merged together to form blue and white, we set out under certain conditions, and those conditions, um, after three very difficult election campaigns, were clearly not sufficient to win to win dramatically, to win in a way that was clear democratically. 
And that to me was an attestation of what I believe actually a little bit of what we're talking about, what I believe the Israeli public is really longing for. And that is the beginning of discourse and the beginning of reconciliation, but actually bottom down because top up, it's what happens around every dinner table in this country. It's what happens in most workplaces. It's what happens amongst family members. We are very different. It's a very, very um, diverse people. Mm-hmm. But the dignity of difference that exists on the street or that exists in the non-for-profit organizations that serve all people regardless of ethnicity or gender or sexual preference, that doesn't trickle up somehow to government. And that's a bit a part of our you know, sort of system of government. Mm-hmm. So our politicians or, you know. So we, you wouldn't be a part of a coalition with the Arab joint list? That, that isn't really at all the question because I'll tell you why I'll tell you why I'll tell you why I'll tell you why if you accept the principles the foundational principles of Israel as Jewish and democratic and that's where you begin from they that, don't okay so that's why I can't be in a coalition me right I won't even speak for all of blue and white I'll speak for me if the foundational principles that guide us as the state of Israel and as I said I believe that we have to you know sort of Uh, uh, legalize our understanding of the state of Israel as Jewish and democratic. It's the only Jewish and democratic state in the world. There's no other one. There are many other democracies around the world. This particular one was founded to be Jewish and democratic. One, one in the entire family of nations. If that's your guiding principle, then anybody who accepts those foundational principles is welcome in my coalition. And I don't care if they're Arab, Jewish, pink, or white. That's not what it's about. Or Bibi. Apparently, that's so why we're in a unity te- government. Yeah, I know. So, can you tell us a bit right. of a, a bit more about that decision? Because just to simplify it for our listeners, you were—I mean, because there's a lot of like ins and outs to this—but you were in uh, in the joint list with Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid and Bugi Alon. You were on that list, and then there was in March, if any of you guys recall, there was this big breakup where Benny Gantz went one way towards Bibi, and Yair Lapid and Bugi Alon went the other way. And they're in the opposition right now. And while you were actually sitting with Bugi Alon, who is now in the opposition, you decided to uh, switch over to Benny Gantz's list and sit within the uh, the government. So tell us a bit more uh, about she sees that, it that She stayed in the in the list. And Thank they, you. Right? That's yeah. a, that's I got, exa- I got the you're right. Point. You got yeah. it. <laughs> but, no, but, it's not a talking like, point. It's my but, it's my own little understanding yeah, no, it's, of the it's, situation. It's, it's but I will explain. Point of view, but officially, right? right? Those like if you look at the lists and the names on the list, that's what happened, so, right? So I'll explain. First okay. of all, we're, I don't want to get into the legalities of it. And there are legalities that are different for whoever was in Yeshatid and who, whoever was in Telem, because Telem okay. basically broke apart, as you may remember. Yuaz Hendel and Zvika Hauser left, and that's more than a third of the party because there were only five members of Knesset. I don't want to get into the ins and ins of the technicality of that mm-hmm. but the implication of that is actually that if I were there at the time of the original breakup then I would have had to choose which party I was going with that's my own legal you know privilege according to the Takanon Knesset which then became law actually after the election regarding Yeshatid it was more complicated but I was a member of Tilim as you mentioned um, and the imperative that I felt and actually I was very sad that they chose not to remain in blue and white after three election campaigns that bore a very difficult price on the Israeli public and uh, under the um, threat of what we then didn't know enough about the coronavirus challenge Mm -hmm. whether it was and we didn't know at the time health economic I would say social um, mental health challenge that we see on the streets of Israel maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that it was just the beginning of the crisis and 
it's apparent now that it's here to stay, right? This is a long-term challenge. This is not a quick fix and we'll, you know, get over that. So I would say the imperative to enter a unity government became even more apparent. And my sadness at Yeshatid Talim deciding not to take the responsibility, which I felt we had no choice but to take, not just because the Joint Arab List would have been um, a party that doesn't accept the premise of Israel as Jewish and democratic, but because the implication of a minority government in with all of the challenges that we are facing, um, and some may argue that the majority government is not doing any better, but the, it, let's say hindsight is twenty twenty. we can say that now. At the time, the prospect of a minority government in the face of the challenges that we were expected to be facing and after three election campaigns of tearing apart Israeli society and highlighting all that uh, differentiates us and everything that separates us rather than everything that unites us in a time where I would say the public trust is probably the most important commodity we have in the face of this, you know, growing challenge, COVID-19, you know, unexpected end of um, uh, a situation. I would say that I was very disappointed personally um, and uh, with, with my own party head's decision at the time with Telem's decision and felt that um, there was actually no other alternative, that it was not taking responsibility. And Telem, the word statesmanship, for lack of a better English word, I say, comes with a lot of responsibility. But you promised yeah. not to sit with Bibi. And we promised, and I was there when Bogi gave this interview, not to join forces with the joint Arab list Sababa. by the same token, so d- by the very same so token. So neither, so you can was, do neither. There was no, well, then the only other option was a fourth election. Well, you never promised, you never promised. We never, a hundred percent, we never promised not to have a fourth election. So, so if it's important to you, your voters, you yeah. know, and the people who sent you, yeah. so that would be, I guess, the, the only option. I, I, I want to say something about that. I want to say something just about promise and reality, you know, um, uh, Rabin, when he entered a unity government, said, I don't know what the voters wanted, but I know what the election results are. When you lose, and we didn't win, you know, you could say nobody won, you could say Bibi didn't want, win, we didn't win. Three times in a row, you have certain responsibilities to reassess what you promised. You know what the election results are, and I would say that the public told us loud and clear what they expected, and it was a unity government. So the fact that some people had a harder time accepting the formation of that unity government, and then they still do, right? And and we see them on the streets um, demonstrating. And I understand the challenge of understanding that. But the majority, because when you look at Blue and White's original voters and Likud's original voters, those were the majority. The majority expected these two parties to get over themselves and take care of nine million Israeli civilians who need their leadership to function. But the majority of blue and white voters voted on the promise that that he wouldn't sit with Benjamin Netanyahu. And now 70% of your voters are not voting for you, according to the current polls. Right, so I, you know, polls, whatever, and reality is wherever else it is. So I, I don't think that polls are the issue. I think that politicians have to look at reality. And I think that we have a responsibility to look at what the public is asking us to do and to also look at reality, whether it's three election results and coronavirus or whether it would have been just coronavirus. There was an imperative to convey a very clear message that unity government is meant to take care of what I would hope, based on the coalition agreement, enable the technical ability 
to focus on nine million civilian nine million civilians needs with regard to coronavirus, whether it's health or economic, and I would hope take the second step and become from just a technical unity government to a genuine unity government that is able to begin to lead the process of reconciliation that we talked about a little bit before. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think any other government can do that. But if the government falls apart in December, on December, can we agree that if that happens, then you failed? Because what's the point of the whole unity government agenda if it doesn't last a year? You know, you could only say if we failed or succeeded if you knew what the implications would be if we weren't in the unity government. When I think of the entrance into you, this uni- unity government, for me, um, as somebody committed to the rule of law, to its institutions, Uh, to the kind of budget that we'll end up passing or did pass in terms of what the public has received or hasn't received, to educational plans that I've uh, ensured that begin, for example, a plan for you know youth at risk, 8,000 youth at risk, that the next thing that was going to happen was they'd be, they'd be on the streets. You could only say if we made a mistake or not, if you would have known the alternative of how much worse the situation would be. So I would argue that no matter how much Or uh, what are the, uh, the what's the list of failures that you'll list in December I'll tell you we were there in order to um, safeguard the first of all I would for me the values that I believe in in terms of uh, 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 the rule of law and its institutions and we were there to do it consistently so we were there to ensure right through from the beginning of the formation of this government uh, whether it's through the corona law which you know enabled demonstrations on one hand so those that as you say don't support us anymore have to acknowledge or at least should know that the only reason that they can demonstrate in the streets whether it's against us or against anybody else is because our insistence that there would be a corona law that enabled that that secured the right to demonstrate and everything that's gone from there whether it's you know the 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 attacks on the institutions of the rule of law whether it's yeah um, the Attorney General or the police force blue and white is committed to certain values that But are no, it's not the budget which is the most urgent so. so even the budget when you think about where that argument and it was a misnomer the entire time the one-year two-year budget it wasn't true the one year was three months and the two year was 2021 and when I look again at all my committees when I look at educational programs that need to know that they have a budget and For the entire school year that's 2021 that's not we need a three-month budget until December and then we will be here again in the committees in order to fight for whether it's as I said the you know the youth at risk uh, programs or the integration of children with disabilities into regular schools that was unacceptable so right from the get-go that was a non-issue it was a non-starter and I'll say one more thing and I say this as a lawyer and as a human being that is what the coalition agreement was meant to be all it is is And if you read it, you'll recognize it, is just the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, what I refer to as technical unity. That's all that that coalition agreement um, encapsulates. It's the technical infrastructure that will enable this uh, unity government to get off the ground. Everything else is extra. And agreements have to be honored. That's just a basic thing. Some It's would say agreements a, are meant to be broken, but yeah well, <laughs> you know I, again, as a lawyer, I don't recommend that, but you can certainly choose you know whatever so you decide le- to do with one thing Corona there law. was yeah, one thing there was no uh, not much disagreement on was the emergency law that was passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it ironically, it was passed in almost 
no time, but it was passed with the uh, the reasoning that you know uh, legislation takes too long. Um, That's not the full. Well, it's scope one of, it. of the reasonings. No, that the, the law was passed because we we have to pass an emergency law in order to be able to enact certain things. So I just want to explain the yeah. way that we were running, and, and you probably know this, the state of Israel has all has, is in an emergency situation from its founding moment, yeah. actually. Just discovered we just that. found out. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, me, just, we just found out, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, true story. Unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately. And Ethan it, was shocked. So our conclusion was we aren't living in a democracy, actually. We never have lived so, in one. So I don't it's know. An illusion. Again, I'm not. I'm not sure if I agree with your conclusion. I understand where you might draw it from, but we could talk about that maybe later. I just want to say that the way that the, um, the that the entire system was running, all of the ministries, from the health ministry to the finance, all of the ministries were running under emergency regulations. And emergency regulations, by definition, maybe this is a bit of an answer for you regarding the democracy piece. They expire. They expire every 30 days, or they expire every 45 days. They expire, and you have to either re-launch uh, them or, 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 or reissue them. Which we've been doing and change for them, 70 years. Which we've been doing in some things for 70 years, but not with corona, right? And, and most of the emergency regulation, by the way, the emergency regulation tool is really for times of war. And I, I know it's not nice to, you know, sort of remember, and sometimes we can fool ourselves when we look at the window that we live like every other democracy. But I remind us that we live in a bit of a different reality in a democracy in the middle of a uh, Middle East, which is changing and maybe it'll change for the better and we don't need an emergency situation situation. But in fact, G we us, have had wars every 10 years. Give so. us the reason the emergency so I, law is needed. Like wh why? Yeah. Can you give us a the original one or the Corona because the emergency, the original or the current one. So, so, so emergency regulation enables the state of Israel to mobilize very quickly in emergency situations. And because we have many emergency situations, it's not it's not a surreal um, uh, understanding that we may find ourselves in an emergency situation in a summer of war, in a summer of an operation. You know, we call them operations now, but ultimately war. We can talk about that a little bit too, or in a coronavirus challenge. It was the easiest or the most available tool. The most readily available tool was we are, and we still are, in, a, in an emergency situation, except that we recognize as a democracy that it's not preferable to use emergency regulation and then either reissue it and change it every 30 days or be in a situation where there's this constant, um, I would say, instability, inherent instability, which with corona is... It's inherent to war that we have instability and uncertainty. But in Corona, the most important thing for us to realize as legislators, which is a part of my role as an MK, is that we need to create a sense of stability, even in a changing, very dynamic situation, where there is a guiding logic that changes all of the time. Emergency regulation is not the best tool to be using. And therefore, there was a need for a law. So it's the opposite. The reason for the law is because you don't want to be using emergency regulations. Not the reason there was an emergency law is because there's no other and, way to do it. And what did the law actually grant? So the law enables, especially the health ministry, a very wide range of possible decisions to be made very quickly. That was very important to the health ministry. And in fact, it's proving itself as important in the sense that because the COVID-19 challenge is changing all the time. And it was very important for them to remain independent in that sense. Now, the role of MKs and the role that we have at the committees and certainly at the law committee, which I sit on, is to oversee the executive branch, right? We had very, very long 
debates, heated debates, I might add, about the implications of giving power of this extent to create emergency situation regulations or emergency decisions that enable one person or a government without an oversight. And in fact, in that sense, after many weeks of, and it may have seemed quick, but it was many weeks actually of long nights of, um, of debates in the committee. And, and I should tell the listeners, and maybe you too, um, that the, there's real work that's done at the committees, meaning the way that we often um, view the Knesset. Some, like we, yeah. we're too quick to disregard the committees. Well, well, right. I'd say, you know, the plenum gives a very bad rap to the Knesset. The committee work is very important. And the committee work in terms of, you have to understand, that's the supervising powers that we have, right? The executive branch is supervised by, by, in that sense, by the committee work that's done as, you know, the legislative branch basically you know, yes, we can legislate, but we also have supervisory powers and responsibilities. So why would you give that up to the government so, by such laws? So that's the tension, right? In, that's always the tension in democracy. There's always a tension between conflicting values. By the way, you can frame them in terms of values if you want to understand them that way. We also have an obligation to protect the public health, right? So it's the obligation to protect the public health. Depending who you ask. That, well, so, but, but, but it can always be framed in a way of, of conflicting values is but, what I'm trying to say. And that's what the discussions at the committee were about. Exactly that. What is the right balance to strike? So let me ask you, what was the most worrisome in your eyes, most worrisome power either that didn't or did eventually, you know what, that did? What was the most worrisome thing that did pass that you think was kind of giving t up too much power? Look, I'll tell you where the, where the, I'd say the most challenging was in terms of who makes the decision and what is the supervisory power that we keep in our hands. Exactly that tension, right? At the end of the day, I think that there was a balance struck. It could have been a better balance in terms of how is the decision made? Is it first made by the minister's and then does it go for review or does it first go for review and only then can you can the ministers make render their decision? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the decision was that the ministers have the ability, the strength, the power to first make the decision and only then be seconded by the executive, by the legislative branch's possibility to review the decision, right? It'll go to the committee for review and only then be retroactively canceled if they've made a decision that's a wrong decision. That's, that's a tough one. And this is in all cases or only concerning Corona? This is the Corona law. The Corona law is, relates only to, you have to, you know, first of all, we're, we're in coronavirus times mm -hmm. and the declaration of coronavirus, by the way, is already being made. It's not like we can imagine another situation where this will all be done and then Corona law will take it into effect again because we will recall the state of emergency using this Corona law. That's not where we're in. The coronavirus is relevant only to the situation that we are currently in with regard to Corona. Better wrap things up. What can we plug before we go? I maybe want to say one thing, and it's a yeah. little bit, we didn't talk about that, and, and maybe, first of all, my commitment to Olim as somebody who was an Ola, and my commitment to lone soldiers as somebody who was a lone soldier, and also to Bnochirut, who I think have to be given equal treatment to lone soldiers because they're here on their own, much in the same way. Those are uh, people generally from the religious community do, doing national service. That's right. And by the way, national service is one of those things that we can be discussing as a society general generally, because it would enable, if you can imagine, all citizens in the state of Israel to do national service, and some of us to do that national service as military service, but that's for another day. We can talk about that. I do want to say that um, we're six years after a humanitarian ceasefire that was um, struck between Israel and Hamas, and I'm very involved in on a legal um, level 
um, with the golden case and cause, Hadar Golden, that was abducted and killed one hour after uh, a humanitarian ceasefire brokered by the U.S. and the U.N., supported by the EU, went into effect one hour after he was abducted and killed, as I said, in blatant violation of an internationally um, uh, brokered humanitarian ceasefire. And six years have passed. We just marked um, the signing of this agreement last week. And meanwhile, what we see over and over again is uh, the challenge of incendiary balloons or kites or rockets flying overhead in breach of the very same international law. And I want people to understand that every single one of those balloons actually constitutes, according to the law, a crime against humanity. It's a very important thing for us to internalize so that as I call it, the state of Israel can begin to rise from the docket of the accused, in that sense, using the language of international law and human rights and demand of the trustees of international law and human rights, whether it's the countries or the organizations or the representatives, to um, avoid and to stop and to expose the double standard that's being used with regard to the state of Israel. So if we hold ourselves to account, and we do, to the terms of international law, then the international community has to hold those that are holding two million civilians in Gaza hostage alongside our four civilians. And I should say there are two deceased soldiers, Oren Shaul and Adal Goldin, and two civilians who we don't know their, their whereabouts, Avera Mangisto and Isham Asayed, and they're being held there. And it's very important that your listeners know that international law generally and human rights are undermined very dramatically when there's a double standard and when there isn't an application consistently and across the board on all members and it enables a continued culture of impunity not only here in in, in our region but with regard to other regimes that hold their people as hostage to mm -hmm. their is there any organization maybe that uh, that we can that people can uh, donate to that helps people in uh, Gaza surrounding or maybe do you know of one? So so I, c I could tell you that the organization affiliated with Hadar Golden's the case and cause that we've really um, struggled for is called Hadar Shili. That's something Hadar Shili. just to know, um, and you can look it up. And even just to really at the end of the day, just to raise awareness and to okay. become aware that this is something that we should mention and not forget as six years have passed. So guys, check out Hadal Shali and of course and read okay, up. Okay, how can we? How can people stay in touch with you? You're on Twitter. You're on Facebook. So I am. I am. Instagram. I, TikTok. I'm not not on TikTok. Okay. I am on all other platforms: Twitter, Facebook. What's your Twitter Instagram. handle? I'm Michal Kotler. Have you gotten censored yet? Michal Kotler Wunsch. Excuse me. Michal Kotler Wunsch. Has Twitter censored any of your tweets and yet? Absolutely not. I'm <laughs> not, blue not check. Yet. Offensive. Not yet. Yeah. I am blue I checked. I would be offended. The, that would be a double standard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Perfect. So we'll put links, guys. Before we go, we are uh, in partnership with The Forward. The Forward. Yes, guys. Check them out. Theforward.com. You get all of your opinions, your commentary, your Jewish news. Uh, check them out, theforward.com. Also, Arutsheva, israelnationalnews.com. Check them out for amazing articles and content about Israel. And also the Australian Jewish News, yes. ajn.timesofisrael.com. Also highly recommended. And, and finally, we do finally, this on our free yes. time. So if you want to help us out, go to 2njb.com slash donate. Michal, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for having amazing. me. It's been amazing. Good luck. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>